0: relationsreviewpodcast.com Thank you so much for listening to the Public Relations Review Podcast and have a great day. Welcome. This is the Public Relations Review Podcast, a program to discuss the many facets of public relations with seasoned professionals, educators, authors, and others. Now, here is your host, Peter Woolfolk. Welcome to the Public Relations Review Podcast and to our listeners all across America and around the world. Now, question, what would you do if you witnessed some unethical activities in your workplace or by some of your colleagues or some of your friends? Would you remain silent and let it go or would you take a stand and speak up? Fortunately, today I have a strong woman as a guest who decided to stand up and speak up. My guest today is a five-time PRSA Silver Award winner. Her leadership awards include the Percy Award from the Phoenix PRSA, a Platinum Leadership Award from the PRSA Western District, and the Senator John McClain Inspirational Leadership Award in Arizona. She is also the Executive Director of the nonprofit Honoring Americans Veterans. She is a member of the PRSA College of Fellows and a member of the PRSA Board of Ethics and Professional Standards. And she earned distinction as a PRSA Pro of the Year in 2015 for her ethical stand as a Phoenix VA whistleblower. In this realm, she was able to help expose the excessive VA wait time scandal and call for change to legislation and accountability within the Department of Veterans Affairs. She collaborated with the Phoenix Veterans Administration, members of Congress, and the media to expose the unethical wait times and delays managers were imposing on our nation's veterans. This came at great personal expense, but she did the right thing and saved lives. She was inducted into the Defense Information School Hall of Fame and published a book about it, A Sacred Duty. And she joins me today from Phoenix, Arizona. I am very pleased to have Paula Pedine, APR of Paula Padina & Associates, to speak about unethical events from personal experience. Paula, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you for that lovely introduction, Peter.
0: Well, look, let's start at the beginning. Give us a bit about your background. I understand that you uh, might have also, uh, that you're a veteran yourself. Is that so?
1: Yeah, the the way I got tangled up, I should say, with VA is the fact that I am a U.S. Navy veteran. I enlisted in 1978. I became what was called a broadcast journalist at the time, and I worked for the Armed Forces Radio and Television Service. I was the first female selected for a co-anchor slot on a nationwide TV show that the Navy had in operation called Navy News This Week, and that was before cable television and the Internet, so we had to get the information out to the ships at sea, and we would take the show, broadcast it, send it via satellite, and we did send it to... Um, Stations across the country. Uh, I got bit by the journalism bug because I was in Washington, D.C. and got out of the Navy, went and worked on the Hill as a correspondent. I covered many wonderful issues. Um, The Graham-Rudman, you know, base realignment and closure issues. Uh, I was actually able to cover the Iran-Contra affair, certain elements of that. And I worked with a few other correspondents to cover some of the political presidential nominees, including uh, Bob Dole and Dukakis, Michael Dukakis at the time. So I'm a little old, (laughs) but had a, a wonderful career. And then my husband got shuffled off to Buffalo. We got married. He was in the Navy and um, I became a reporter there. And then the VA in Buffalo had an opening for a public affairs officer, and I looked at the job, and I thought, I can do that, and I got into public affairs and really never looked back. Mm -hmm. Uh, I moved from Buffalo to Denver, Colorado with the VA, and then to Phoenix, Arizona, and I retired, um, well, I worked at Phoenix VA for most of my time, which was 20 years in the federal government. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, you talk about a small world. I'm uh, also from Washington, D.C., and I also worked. On Capitol Hill, I was the press secretary for the then chairman of the House of Education and Labor Committees. Yeah, we would travel down some of the same roads. Probably,
1: absolutely, <laughs> it was. It's fun. That's really a wonderful highlight of my career, having that experience and that time. And it was when the folks were more cordial <laughs> to each other, absolutely. so we were able to get both sides you know, you could easily get both sides of the information and let people decide for, for themselves. And and we were working there at a time, I think, when there was uh, don't make the decision for people, just give them the information and let them make it them themselves.
0: Well, I, I certainly agree with that because I showed myself there was a lot of collegiality on both sides of the aisle up there then. So uh, yeah, if, if somehow we can get back to that, I think the nation as a whole <laughs> would appreciate it.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. I really totally agree.
0: So so tell me now that we know that you actually worked at the VA, how did this come about that you saw what was going on and decided that you had to take a stand?
1: Well, what had happened, it's kind of a, a web of things. Two years prior to the national wait time exposure, we had a new director come in and he was more about himself than our veterans. So we had just had a phenomenal director retire who was all about putting the veterans first, and we had a culture of excellence at the Phoenix VA that was really one of the leading entities in VA nationwide. And many people came out and looked at our models of care and what we were doing and used them as guidelines for for their practices. So when this guy came in, it was really hard on all of us, he, he wanted to do things unethically to make himself look good. We caught him at it. We exposed it. We presented it to the, his higher-up uh, the network director who wanted to take action. We worked with her, and we worked with the Office of the Inspector General and provided all the details. And fortunately, they collaborated, and we were able to remove him um, from his position. He was actually forced to retire. Mm-hmm. His number two was kind of left behind and didn't get the message. <laughs> so within a few short months after, he was forced to retire, too. And after they left, we had an administrative investigative board where they actually put me on on the record uh, with testimony about the information that we had shared uh, with the OIG and and captured it. And because of that, I was identified as um, a whistleblower at the time for exposing the hostile work environment that this uh, director had created and uh, mismanagement of our fee basis funds which are funds that VA uses to contract care out to the community.
0: Just quickly, when you say some of the unethical things that the, this person and his uh, successor did, what were some of those things that, that you ran across?
1: Yeah. And you know, Peter, it's so interesting. They, they, a lot of them tie to waits and delays. So he wanted a new MRI machine, which is a magnetic resonance imaging and what it does is it looks inside the body with magnets and kind of slices things together inside so the healthcare team can get a beautiful picture of what's happening and it allows them to diagnose without doing what they used to do, which were exploratory surgery mm-hmm. to find things out. So he wanted another one of those machines. We didn't have the need built up to warrant a second MRI. So what he did was he started ensuring that the radiology staff, he he threatened them to ensure that they did not allow people to have appointments. They created a wait list and that would help him get the second MRI. Well, the staff kind of went livid over that. I had a, a doctor, Dr. Sam Foote, that told me he put in three consults for three different patients, they were all denied, and he wanted to know what was going on, and we collaborated together with that information and some other information about the work environment. Because again, he would put himself in, in front of our veterans. Like, we had this big, beautiful Phoenix Veterans Day parade, and rather than worrying about the parade itself, he was mostly worried about what entry he was going to be with, what he was going to wear. He had a Hispanic background, so he, you know, had a, a beautiful, like, uh, Hispanic, you know, the black outfits with the silver and the sombreros. Mm -hmm. But it it was all about him in the parade, not about all of our veterans. And he's not a veteran. He wasn't a veteran. So, and then he would say off-color jokes. He'd he'd make women especially feel uncomfortable. He harassed me like crazy. He he told me he didn't think I'm legally blind, um, that he could work with a, a blind public affairs officer. You know, because he thought I should be out uh, meeting with the media in person. Well, I had ability to do that, and I was doing that, but I was also meeting with them over email and phone you know, how, how things go, because the VA had provided me a driver to get where I needed to go for official business. Mm-hmm. And, of course, he never checked into that. So the, the insult not only to me, to other women, the way he would belittle staff, he would really belittle staff in front of others and humiliate them, you know, and then the delays with the health care for our nation's veterans were the things that kind of got him.
0: So once the, I guess, uh, you had reached your boiling point, how? What did you do first to really get, to get this ball rolling? How did you gather yeah. support to uh, to begin to move forward?
1: So we we Sam and I collaborated, Doctor Sam Foote, and he was a clinic director at the Thunderbird VA Healthcare Clinic, and he was also the member at large. At the clinical executive board so what that means is that here's a doctor that's popular amongst his colleagues to Mm -hmm. the point where they say we want you to be our voice at these medical meetings at Mm -hmm. the senior level so um, and, and Sam and I interacted on on that level through the my public relations efforts for the hospital for our veterans for healthcare Etc. So we collaborated together, gathered the evidence, packaged it up, contacted the network director, gave it to her, and she said she was going to handle it, and she did. And then after she talked to him about it, because she, she addressed him first, then she asked us to file our complaint with the Office of the Inspector General. So we thought everything was fine. Um, after he left, they got new management in. But what we didn't know, it was that the storm was brewing, because the woman that came in after him was, like, even worse. Oh, my goodness. And what, yeah, what <laughs> had happened was she had a target on our backs, and, you know, we didn't realize it. So here I am, the PR person. It's uh, The hospital is 60 years old at the time. It's our first woman director. So I'm excited. Mm-hmm. You know, here it is. Here's a woman. She's able to... Um, She was younger than me, get, break through the glass ceiling, get to be a director of a hospital, so I did everything I could to support her. Um, We started a weekly blog that she wanted to do, I got her in front of the media, I wrote op-eds for her, I connected her with other healthcare leaders in the community, other civic leaders in the community, so she would have a voice in the community, and I just didn't know that she wanted to kind of take us out of the whole thing in the process, which made it very difficult and challenging. So I did all kinds of things to help build her image in the community. Uh, And that was really helpful for the facility, too, because they want to know that our leader is somebody that's going to be ethical and responsive and truly take care of our nation's veterans. Mm
2: -hmm. But little
1: did we know that she had a target on our back, and one thing led to another, and the next thing we knew, um, she was targeting me and she was targeting Sam to make our lives miserable. And um, I had no idea until... So she got there in February, and in August, I, I really learned how much she was targeting me through some information that I had gotten. And um, that's when I started protecting myself. Well, and wait. I hired an employee re- attorney at the time, an employee representative, started talking to him. and And what do I mean by targeting? You know, what mm-hmm. they do is... I tell people about this in the bureaucracy, it's death by a thousand paper cuts, Mm -hmm. it's really what it is, you put in your slip for leave, you know, you have a medical appointment, you have to go off station, they don't approve it, they don't approve it, you put it in two weeks in advance, they don't approve it, they withhold it until the day of the activity and then they let you know you know 30, 45 minutes prior. Well for me that was challenging because I needed to arrange rides to get to where I needed to go.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So they were hindering me and my efforts. The same thing with my lead, um, they'd pile on the work, and then not take away all my staff and all my resources, and then I'm a salaried employee. So you know, you just work until the work gets done. You don't have set hours. You're not working for 40 hours and then you're done. All right. And they would say you can't work any longer than four o'clock every day. We need you out of the your your office. So. And then they told me, that it, so then I start taking work home, and I'm working, you know, on it at night and on the weekends because I care about the staff. I care about the patients. Mm-hmm. I care about the community, and I want to make sure that we're doing the most right thing for them, so I'm taking on this personal burden um, of bringing it home and working on the weekends. And they, they caught me working on the weekends, and they used that as a pretense to start setting me up for disciplinary actions. So it's things like that. The death by – and they're, they're little things, you know, they – that they do time after time, day after day. You're excluded from meetings. You're excluded from phone calls. You're, you know, (laughs) moved from the thing that you normally do, like handling an event and activity, and they shift it to someone else. They tell you, if you want to go to the homeless veteran stand down and represent the facility, you have to do it on personal time. It's going to be leave for you because it's, off-duty, it's mm-hmm. uh, not off-duty, but off-station. So it's those kinds of things. They could make your life really miserable. Well, let, well, let, and,
0: me, uh, let me ask you another question in, in, in terms of your, you know, fighting back at this. Uh, how did you, because in the opening I mentioned that uh, you'd work with, uh, you know, some members of Congress and uh, and the media. Yeah. How did you begin to how did get, we get them there? involved? Yeah, right.
1: yeah. So what happened in August was I found out through a comedy of errors they were targeting me, They so I started protecting myself. They took action against me in August, I mean in December, and they took me out of my job for what was to be a 30-day investigation, and I was being reassigned to a different department, which they had the authority to do, and they, they put me under a person who was two levels, three levels below my grade. And uh, they said I was going to report to her, which ethically and and, uh, legally they can't do, but they did it anyway. And then it was when I was working for that other person, because I was working in the library of the hospital, that I started hearing about the waits and delays for our Mm -hmm. nation's veterans.
2: Mm -hmm. And
1: that's when I started putting the pieces of information together. So I tell people that as tough as this journey was, that God placed me where he needed me to be so that I could help uncover what was about to happen. So I did. So, you know, my 30-day investigation turned into a two-year ordeal, but during that time, the first six months, I was creating an evidentiary file about the waits and delays for Mm -hmm. our nation's veterans, and how they were manipulating the data, and what they were doing. I started contacting colleagues anonymously, because I was under a a legal gag order, and that was the other thing they did. They said, I couldn't talk to anybody, and... So I kind of had to report it anonymously, and then I started working with colleagues who saw what they were doing and wanted to help me stop them, and that's when the, the effort fully began, and that was about 11 months into the, quote-unquote, 30-day mm-hmm. investigation. Well, 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 let me
0: ask you again, <laughs> how did you also begin to get members of Congress involved? Uh, I guess uh, you had to do that yeah. surreptitiously as yep. well.
1: Yeah. So at at about the 11-month mark, that's when Dr. Foote came back. I had called him numerous times and I said, please help me. And he agreed to do so, and he said, Paula, I can tell by the letters that I have written to members of Congress and others that they're not listening, and I'm going to need to retire to blow this whole thing wide open, and that's when I said, Sam, I will help you, and I put him in touch with members of the media. I put him in touch with members of the Senate Veterans Affairs Committee, the House Veterans Affairs Committee, mm-hmm. and others. I put him in touch with... Um, different people in the, the VA realm that kind of saw what they were doing that could help us work through the intricacies that we needed to work through. And that's how we were able to expose them. So in this effort, the public effort started in training with Sam started in about January of uh, 2014, by April of 2014, Chairman Jeff Miller of Health Veterans Affairs knew he, we had enough evidence to make it public,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, so he brought it up at a hearing and he asked the Under for Health Operations at the time if, Dr. Lynch, if I had told you that there's evidence that 40 veterans may have died due to waits and delays at the Phoenix VA, could you say that was any part of your look back? And he said, no, Mr. Chairman, I could not. And what they didn't know, but what we knew, was that we had already primed investigative reporters with our side of the story about the waits and delays Mm -hmm. and the evidence, and they needed a second source, which turned out to be Congressman Jeff Miller on the record, on April 9th, twenty fourteen. Mm-hmm. So that's how it came to be. So once that hit, it was everywhere. Now, I mean, <laughs> did this
0: also include the second person that that replaced the uh, uh uh you know the first two that were causing problems? The lady that you said came in.
1: Yes. So yeah. she was
0: also showing the door had as well. a
1: team. Yeah, she had a team of people. She had her chief of staff. She had the chief nurse. She had the associate director, the assistant director. They were all kind of having these, uh, the deputy chief of staff, these top level meetings with just the five of them, the closed door, no notes, no nothing, where they would talk about this stuff and, and what they were doing. So she, it's interesting to me, Peter, is how people, are so complacent and they don't stand up, mm-hmm. even when they know something's wrong. There there was numerous staff members that saw the veterans were waiting and that they weren't getting health care. Mm-hmm. And yet this is what the director was saying that was going on different, and it wasn't. And yet nobody really, it's hard to, to stand up against them. You know, it's hard to, when you have a leader for the staff to kind of go with another person, like me, the public affairs person, even though they knew me and respected me, it was like, well, she's in trouble with the director. Her and the director don't get along. They don't see eye to eye. That's what it becomes, when in actuality, she was really unethical and mm-hmm. what they were doing was killing our nation's veterans. I mean, we have the evidence of that, and then it, it, once it hit the national news and the Secretary of Veterans Affairs was forced to resign because what we didn't know is it was more than just a Phoenix issue, it was a nationwide issue
2: mm-hmm.
1: where they were making veterans wait for their health care. And I think it was 111 VA facilities came under scrutiny for their unethical wait time practices. Mm-hmm. And that's when laws got changed. Too, which was critically important as well. So, it's kind of a this intricate weave of a web that's hard to unravel when you're inside it and it's even harder to kind of share it here in your podcast. There's just so much detail and that's one of the reasons I wrote a book to talk about the journey because can you imagine going from the top floor of the hospital where you're in on the senior leadership, day-to-day CEO operations down to the basement level of the hospital in the library where you're sharpening pencils, checking in books, checking out books, (laughs) making copies, (laughs) faxing documents, you know, completely different world.
0: Well, I I see that really as a way that they want to try to maybe try to force you out, to force you to make your own decision to resign. They
1: did, because they can't just fire you without cause in the right. federal government. Mm-hmm. And I, I was protected because I had a stellar career. Right. I had won numerous awards. We had an award winning program. You know, the hospital was great with with the team we had. So, it's just kind of this bad situation that we dealt with. And that's why the book was important to me. I wrote a book that you mentioned, it's called A Sacred Duty, how a whistleblower took on the VA and won, because it was such a a difficult time for all of us working on the inside, gathering the evidence, seeing how they were hurting our veterans, and then trying to get them out and, and not getting senior leader above them Mm -hmm. support and having to go outside and airing your dirty laundry in public and the book takes you through that step by step each you know piece and it's full of tales of misinformation where they're providing false information you know to, to members of the staff and then disinformation where they're going outside of the hospital Mm-hmm. and reporting that to the media and to members of Congress. And and you're at, they're actually lying to people to make themselves look good mm-hmm. so they can get a performance award for their metrics of, we got the patients in within 14 days mm-hmm. to see a health care provider, which in actuality wasn't true. It was six months, nine months, sometimes a year.
0: Well, let me ask so. you another question then in terms of, you know that that you found a way to make this happen to get this information out what would you suggest to someone else who might have been in mm. your position they, they see it happening and uh, maybe they're at a crossroads they don't know what to do what, what would you do. recommend to yeah. them?
1: Well I think that the first thing you really have to find and the best help would for me was having what, what is known as an employee representative that helps you build a case. I happen to have an HR director who had 40 years of VA experience and wanted to help us, and uh, he had helped us on the first whistleblowing activity, so fortunately I already had that contact and was able to use him again the second time around. So I I say see if there's employee representatives that you can contact. Um, Check with federal attorneys in the area that are handling EEO and whistleblower cases and see if they can help put you in touch uh, with people because you need to build your case. Mm -hmm. It's not something that just pops up overnight. It takes months, months months, day after day of I found this, I found that, and getting all that information collected and sharing it with the proper authorities under the whistleblower disclosure laws. You have to read up on those, mm-hmm. you know, to make sure that you're doing everything right so in the end you don't get caught up in, in the, the, the brimstone of the wave of accountability you just, you know, you're you're the one that acted ethically and, and correctly, and you're a you're within the the level of the law um, it, to do what you do.
0: You know, one of the other things that I found out, of having talked to several several investigative reporters, we're talking about over ninety percent of their stories come from whistleblowers. And uh, yeah. there are some occasions where people have to make some some arrangements, uh, you know, that I know this is going on, I can't be the one to tell you, I can right. get information to you, and you, know, you let me know what you need, I'll find a way to get it right. to you, so forth and so on, and then once you have it, then you can let it, you know, let it out, but, you know, just don't identify me, I mean, Watergate is obviously one of the the most famous ways of doing that. But,
1: exactly. Uh, but and, and so many situations today, I mean, if you look at numerous stories in the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, that are investigative in nature, they say top-level sources right. who ask not to be identified. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and thank God for them. And thank, thank God that they continue to operate ethically within the system and keep their jobs when it's difficult for them to be inside an unethical environment, but they know that if they leave, who's going to stop them? They're mm-hmm. afraid that nobody will be strong enough to stop them. And, and they do. They, they help us stop the unethical behavior. That's, and we need them. We need them. So there's numerous groups, too. The Government Accountability Project is phenomenal. For helping whistleblowers, I truly support GAP. Um, the project on government oversight is another one that can help employees and whistleblowers. You know, there's organizations and associations that that can help the whistleblowers of America. So Congress has whistleblower liaison to kind of help too. Mm-hmm. You just you kind of have to know your sources and what you're talking about in order to make sure that you do it correctly and ethically.
0: And you know, that that brings up another thing too, because in <laughs> essence, this was crisis communications. Uh, yes. <laughs> and, and sometimes, you know, maybe some of the things, if you don't have personal experience, my, my personal point of view is that if you don't have personal experience dealing with a major crisis, you know, taking a class right. in it is really not going to help you because you have to learn to make decisions how to go about doing things to uh, save your reputation as well, but still get the information out so that it's uh, attended to and the proper attention and, and uh, responses are, are made.
1: And and that is so correct. And, you know, over the course of a, a 40-year federal government career, I had to deal, mitigate, and manage numerous crises mm-hmm. from small scale to large scale we had the electrical power go out in a wing of the hospital people are on oxygen <laughs> you know you got you you've got to handle things correctly fires you know internally those kinds of things are it's a good way to learn some of the intricacies of what to do um, but you're right, it, the training can help. It's not the end-all, be-all, but it can help. And um, uh, that's where I think, you know, I would have never made it through without my employee representative, mm-hmm. Roger French, without um, my legal team at Minahan Muther, uh, Law hand, law firm in out of Denver, Colorado. They work with, you know, government employees. So those those were, and, and some other friends that knew HR law in and out. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it truly made a difference. And, and the other, the biggest thing though, Peter, is people need to be prepared for the fallout. Because what happened to me was it was really kind of interesting. People I had known for 20 years decided that I was in trouble they were going to stay away from me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, even though we had been colleagues and friends and done other things, it tells you who your true friends are, mm-hmm. really. So a third of the staff kind of said, well, she's in trouble with the director. They're not getting along, so I'm just going to stay away for, from her. And mm-hmm. they'll actually see me walking down the hallway and... Uh, cross the hallway just so they don't have to say hi Mm -hmm. or turn down a stairwell just so they can avoid me, you know,
2: it's just sad. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, it's just sad, but they do it. And then there's another third that sit there and say, well, she's in trouble with a director. She was always kind of the one who who made me work because I held people accountable. I believe that if you're working for the federal government, it's, taxpayer dollars at work and we need to uphold those as ethically as we can so i would hold people accountable mm-hmm. if they didn't care their job i made sure that they they were counseled by me and if they didn't listen to me then they were counseled by their supervisor and if right. they still chose to not participate at that point in time then it became a bigger issue
2: mm-hmm. but
1: you know we're all there together to work so those people though an opportunity to throw you under the bus and they do (laughs) and that that was kind of well I think I've got this on her I think I've got that on her and see by doing that they were able to keep the investigations going on I I had like seven different investigative bodies that I had to report to and prove my case in front of it was Mm. crazy Mm. it was just crazy it's like being tried for the same crime seven times over it just doesn't make sense and then there's the other third of the people who are like wait a second this is Paula the who's done nothing but take good care of us take good care of our veterans keep the community informed mm-hmm. you know work with everybody I, I don't believe them they're they're not something's wrong here something's wrong with this picture and if she was really doing something so unethical, how come they didn't remove her?
2: Mm-hmm. You
1: know, why is it taking this long to, quote-unquote, investigate her?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, because the longer it takes, the less they have is really what it means. So, and they were the ones that were praying for me, supporting me, you know, buying me coffees, coming down to the library and visiting me, giving mm-hmm. me a word of cheer, um, giving me insider information. Well, so yeah.
0: Well, Paula, you have been—I'll uh, say this much: I've really learned a lot from you, and I'm sure our listeners will too. Do you have any sort of parting wisdom you might want to impart to our mm. listeners?
1: You know what? I think the most important thing is if you're in a situation where you think things are not going correctly, to start documenting. Uh, one of the ways that I was able to write my book is because I have an evidentiary trail of information. Who did what when, when, how did they do it, who was involved, those kinds of things. So I think the evidence is important, and keeping a journal and I'm working through that really can help. So I think that's critically important because afterwards you kind of forget and the other thing I would tell you, Peter, and it's always to me, especially um, as a journalist and a public relations practitioner, uh, and and a Catholic and a woman of faith, is that you've got to tell the truth.
2: Mm-hmm. You know,
1: I this whole journey started because I did something that that wasn't considered in line with Medical Center policy. They were looking for ways to remove me. I had a minor infraction, and when they challenged me on it, I admitted it.
2: Mm -hmm. You know,
1: I logged my husband onto the computer to upload pictures into a public presentation that was shown to a public audience. Now, there's nothing wrong with any part of that other than logging my husband onto the computer when he didn't have the computer access that he was required to have. Mm-hmm. Should have been a letter of counseling, but no. They jumped 20 steps forward, went to <laughs> immediate removal, <laughs> gag order, you know, detail, all, all kinds of things. So the truth is important, and the thing that saved me was my story was the same at every single oh. hearing that I had to go through because I told the truth. So it didn't matter. I didn't have to remember, what did I say to this group? What did I say to this? It didn't right. matter. It was all the same. It mm-hmm. was the truth. And I think that's really important. You know, now having those crucial conversations that, where people can take tell the truth and be honest and ethical with each other. We need more of that mm-hmm. in this world today. I think we do.
0: Well, I certainly agree with you. And, uh, Paula, let me say thank you so very, very much for uh, being our guest today. I've really enjoyed this. I think you've imparted a world of wisdom and information and guidance to those people who may just also need the guidance you, you have, uh, have imparted today. So thank you so much for having uh, been a guest on the Public Relations Review Podcast.
1: <laughs> and thank you for what you do, Peter. I really appreciate you t- helping me tell this story.
0: Great, Dan. We'll hope to talk to you soon.
1: Great. Sounds like a plan.
0: Okay, bye. Okay. And fine. to all my listeners, I would like to say, if you've enjoyed the show, we'd certainly like to get a great review from you. And also let your friends know about this uh, great topic and uh, where to find it. Thank you, and we'll see you again. This podcast is produced by Communication Strategies, an award-winning public relations and public affairs firm headquartered in Nashville, Tennessee. Thank you for joining us. Hi, this is Peter Woolfolk speaking. Now, first of all, thank you so very much for listening to the podcast. Now, I am very excited to let you know that the podcast is now available on Amazon Alexa. You know the drill. Simply say, Alexa, play Public Relations Review Podcast and she'll take it from there. And again, thank you for listening. And if you enjoy the program, please become a subscriber. Now, on to the podcast.